Today is a uh, very um, monumental day in the life of the church, universal. And, you know, we haven't, and we, we didn't plan to go through um, the history of the Reformation. Many of you have heard that history, but I just want to highlight for those who may not be as familiar with it. The church, um, through the first century, was under attack, it was assailed, but particularly it was a unified church. As it spread through the, um, the countries of, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the other parts of the world, the church began to fragment or began to separate. And the first great split was between west and east. Um, the, the western church fell under the um, leadership of the Roman Empire and in, in times in its history was the government of the empire and the government of the church were indistinguishable. They became really united and one. They, the church was under the leadership of the man, the pope, and his cardinals and bishops and representatives throughout the empire. As that system developed, the system became increasingly corrupt. Corrupt um, to the very core. How, you might ask, did it become corrupt? Well, um, it has been said that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That would be a simple way to express the corruption that began to occur. As the church became increasingly under the power of the emperor and the pope, and then distinctively the pope, as the Roman Empire waned in influence and power, the church became more and more corrupt, serving not Christ but one man, the pope. He was said to be a descendant or in the line of descendants of Peter, who they believed to be the first pope. He did not have to be physically descended, but rather it was a spiritual mantle of dissension that passed down through the centuries. This uh, power was to speak for God. When he sat on his throne in, in Rome, he spoke the word of God without error. When he was seated on his throne, his papal throne, he was speaking the very word of God and it was without error, whatever he said was to be the Word of God. You ask, how can that happen? How can anybody, I mean, how can you fall under such grave error and corruption? Simply, when you do not have the Word of God. The people of the Roman Empire were not blessed as we are today. They had no Word of God written in their language. The only dispensers of the Word of God were the priests who served as both priest and often judge and often sheriff of their, of their parish. They were to collect taxes and they were to keep the people under the Pope's leadership at all costs. That was their role. And they spoke the Word of God or what was presumed to be the Word of God. Now you think of this. No copy of God's Word in your hand. No way to read or hear it any other place except at church from the pulpit, from the priest. And when the Word of God was read, 
It was not read in German or English or in Italian, in the native tongues. It was read in Latin. No one would have been able to understand it. And then it was exposited by the priest in the vernacular. So there were, there were, there were, it was like an onion. The power was protected by layer after layer after layer of separation. The people separated from the Word of God and particularly from God Himself. The system developed really through the centuries into an evil, deceptive, corrupt organization. And as we reach the 16th century, it was not the first to rebel against the power of the church. There were many who rebelled through the years. There were many who stood for the Word of God. There was always a pure church. There was always a true church, which despite all opposition, stood on the truth of the gospel. The problem in the 16th century became that it was such a small population that it was unheard of. There was, there was such a small number, they were unheard of. The dominating position was the established position of the Roman church. So, leading up to the 16th century, we had the great invention of the printing press. And we began to see men like William Tyndall, who would give their lives for the distribution of God's Word in the language of the people. Men like John Huss and the Hussites who were martyred for standing and preaching the true gospel. Leading to one man in Germany, Martin Luther. Luther was a Roman, uh, was a part of the Roman church. He was on the fast track, you might say, to great leadership and power in the church. He was a monk and he was gifted as a teacher and was lecturing regularly from, uh, from, the, the, from his uh, university, from the Word of God. And in his study, in his personal struggle of Psalms and Romans, particularly Romans, he came to understand that the whole system was flawed. The whole system had fallen under error. And mistakenly, he believed, that was at the Pope's expense. He still believed the Pope to be a godly man and that all of his representatives had rebelled against him there in Germany. And so he saw himself as trying to rescue the church from this great error. What was the error? Well, there were many. One, though, particularly he was adverse to, and that is the selling of indulgence. The selling of indulgence was a common practice. It was a way for the Pope to raise taxes and supply the money he needed for his, for his building projects, for his, again, his establishment and for his power. And so the selling of indulgences is very common. Luther saw the evil nature. As people, poor people, peasants, brought their lives' earnings and laid them at the feet of the church. Living themselves in poverty, many of them fell into further poverty and harm. And the belief was, by doing this, they were saving their soul. Well, he, through the combination of studying God's Word, coming to a conviction of the true gospel, 
and seeing the selling of these indulgences on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther did what was common in his day. He posted a challenge and a protest. He posted it in the common place on the door of the church of Wittenberg. And he nailed his 95 statements or his 95 theses so that it might be known publicly and debated. It didn't go so well. He was taken from one place to the next, harassed on every side, and came to understand that the church itself was, had fallen into error. The Pope himself had fallen into error. And what started out as a Reformation project turned into a Protestant revival or a Protestant a protest against the church, and then all of them were basically barred from the church pushed out of the church. And so we have the Protestant Reformation. What is so distinctive about it? What's so important about it? Well, it spread from Germany under the influence of this obscure, this obscure monk, or Martin Luther, throughout France and Switzerland and later England and Scotland and the, and the colonies of the United States. It spread across the Western church, and God sparked, without question, the greatest revival since the apostles. This revival was in every way. Economics, government, society, research, education, and most importantly, the revival of the true gospel. Men were being saved, women were being saved all over the world under the pure preaching of God's word. The way they did that was to formulate or bring out a coalition around five statements, basically five cornerstone beliefs. First of all, they believed in Scripture alone. In other words, the Scripture alone has, contains, is the Word of God. And it alone is our foundation and our guide. Because they believed that, they then pressed that all men received the Scriptures in their own tongue, in their own language. And they set up schools to teach and educate the commoner to read and to write. Greatest literacy campaign ever was carried out under the banner of the Reformation. You read today because of the Reformation. They not only believed in Scripture alone, but they believed in Christ alone. It is Christ's work which is sufficient for salvation. His work alone is meritorious. In other words, counts towards righteousness. We can add nothing to it. He saves us by His work alone. Which led them to, by grace alone. God's not bound to act, but He acts out of His goodness, out of His love, out of His mercy. To save poor, wretched, fallen sinners like you and like me. This is done through faith alone. The instrumental cause of salvation is faith, is belief. It, faith does not save you. Christ saves you, they would say. But faith carries you to Christ. Faith is the conduit by which your salvation flows into your life. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, ultimately the great theme of the Reformation was all is to be done for God's glory alone. Sola Dea Gloria became the mantra 
of the Protestant church. Everything, every theology, every sermon was consumed with the glory of God. And the fact that it is the glory of God which must be shown forth from His bride, from His church. She must beam, she must be adorned with His glory alone. This is the Reformation in a nutshell. It is the greatest revival since the time of the apostles. It spread over the western church like a wildfire. It led to the second greatest revival ever since the apostles, and that's the modern missions movement. It led directly into missions, or the preaching of the gospel in the cultures of the whole world. And truly, the gospel now is going forward to all people groups. This is a great Great day. Tomorrow is a great, great day of Mark. I pray your family will mark this great day. That you will thank God for it in your prayers. And in keeping with that and their tradition, let us uh, recite together the Nicene Creed. This creed, put together by the church fathers for the church, states a simple, concise, unified statement on the nature of Christ and the nature of true faith. Let's all stand together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of the one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You have stated a true statement of your faith. I pray it is a heart-level statement. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Traditionally here, we have developed the idea of celebrating the life of one of the true churchmen or statesmen of the church since the Reformation. And in each Reformation Day, we celebrate a different life. We do it two ways. At 9 o'clock, we have always uh, championed and, and given uh, the life sketch of one of the great men of the faith. 
this year, I chose to do John Stott's life. John Stott is uh, not one of the ancient or historical figures, really. He died this year. He lived 90 years. He served one church for over 66 years. He was, by all accounts, an amazing man. And I recommend him to you. There is a great biography, a simple to read, called Basic Christian. The inside story of the life of John Stott. It was written while he was still living, 2007. So he was able to proofread it and approve of it. It's very accurate, very intimate, and very easy to read. I would challenge children and adults alike to read it. It is a remarkable life that he lived, but may I say it was a very normal, very basic life. He was a man of simplicity. He was a man of great faith. He was a man of integrity. His ministry, by God's grace, spread from one church, All Souls Church in London, England, throughout the known world. As a matter of fact, there are training institutes which he established, or those who followed him established, on every continent except Antarctica. At his funeral, uh, he, uh, at his uh, memorial service, he was celebrated by men he either discipled or others who were discipled by his men from each continent. He had a remarkable but ordinary, basic Christian life. What I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say, yes, he was great by God's grace, but yes, he was like you and he was like me, transformed by the grace of God. Well, the second thing we do to mark these great lives is we, I typically pick up one of their sermons and I contemporize it a little didn't have to do a lot with this one. It's pretty contemporary. He preached it for the first time in 1974. He preached it again in 1982. He preached it again in 2001. It is uh, the form that he took in 1980, I think 1983 and 2001 are on the internet. You can actually hear him preach this sermon. One thing I know you all would love about him. His sermons and I've listened to a few, and I've, look, I've listened to 20 or more, and I've looked through his library, his sermons typically were 27 minutes to 31 minutes. Pretty good. They were thorough. But I'll give him this. He had a great advantage over me. You see, I'm from the South. Long-draw storyteller. He's from London. Precise analytical, and he speaks faster than any known man <laughs> from the pulpit. He clipped off a rate of words. So don't think in those 27 minutes you were able to relax much. He had people sitting on the edge of their seats, I can guarantee and imagine. He was a great preacher, a great expositor. I told the people at 9 o'clock, in my opinion, in our day, there's no better expositor of God's Word than John Stott. He preached a sermon in 1974 at the 150th anniversary of All Souls Church there in London. And the title of the sermon was The Living Church. It came to be known as The Living Church. Marks, four marks of a living church. And it came from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. In 2007, it was turned into this book. 
yeah, a 27-minute sermon that became a book, so go figure. He had a lot to say, and he had a lot to think in a short amount of time. I commend the book to you. It's excellent, well-written, and simple. It'll be challenging to you. We must ask the question when we think of the church, what are the marks of a living church? To answer the question, we must return to the first church in the first century, that church in Jerusalem. We must be realistic, which we often are not when thinking of this church, the first church in Jerusalem. The temptation is to idealize the church, to make it perfect in a sense. The church was far from perfect even in the first century. It was tainted it was tainted by conflict, by blemish, and by failure. It was a church like ours. But for all of its failure, it was a church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read the text. Acts 2, verse 42 through 47 reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You might note the, the article, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the, the temple together... And breaking bread in, in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, by day we might say, those who were being saved. Luke, the author of Acts, concentrates on four marks of a living church. And so we too should focus on these marks. First... The living church is a learning church. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We are confronted in this passage with the fact that the early church was, was devoted to the doctrine of the apostles. We might even say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem. And the teachers were the apostles which Christ appointed to the church. And the school was filled with 3,000 kindergartners who were learning for the first time what it meant to associate together in a living church. It's also helpful for us to realize that the people did not have a mystical fellowship and that they were led, they were led by the Holy Spirit to think about the deposit of doctrine which the apostles were giving. They were thinkers, the first Christians. I do not hesitate to say that anti-intellectualism and spirit-filled living are incompatible. The reason I do not hesitate to say that is because of who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is not a friend to our postmodern world, which claims there is no truth. For you see, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And He causes us to think deeply about that truth. So, if you pride yourself on being a non-thinker or an emotional person, then I encourage you, that is anti the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God causes us to be 
thinkers. And look at the verse. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They sat at the feet of the apostles. They submitted to the authority of the apostles as they were appointed by Christ to lead and found the church. In verse 43, we are told that the apostles' teaching was authenticated by miracles. Which, by the way, is one of the great purposes of miracles or wonders throughout the Scripture. At the opening of any age of the work of God, He attests the work through the working of miracles. And that's what's happening now. As the church age comes into maturity and the Spirit is poured out by Christ on the church, we should not be surprised that the apostles worked miracles through the Holy Spirit. You might ask, what is the application of this mark to our church and to us? How can we devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles? We do not have apostles today. We have many offices within the church. Pastors, teachers, deacons, bishops, missionaries. But we do not have apostles. We may say that these men do apostolic work but we cannot assign to them the noun apostle. For that is reserved for those who were appointed by Christ directly. Particularly the eleven apostles with also the replacement for Judas and Paul and possibly James, the brother of Jesus Christ. These are the apostles and they are all dead. So how might we as a church devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles? Well, it's very simple. We devote ourselves to the New Testament and to the way that the apostles taught us there contained in those pages. When we submit ourselves to the Word of God written, we submit ourselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. How do we submit ourselves to the pages of the New Testament and the words written there, you might ask? That's very clear also. Pastors expound the Word of God, the teaching of the apostles. A pastor is not one who stands and gives his opinion, but rather one who stands on the authority of the apostles, teaching from the writing of the apostles, so that the church might be instructed by God through the apostles. This is expositional preaching. Parents also give themselves to the task of teaching their children in their homes. Father and mother giving themselves daily to the teaching of God's Word, to the breaking of the Word of God so that their children might understand what the apostles taught. Pastors preaching expositional sermons. Parents teaching their children at home. Individuals reading and studying God's Word on their own in their private time. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit themselves to the Word of God. So we say the first mark of the living church is that the living church is a learning church. Secondly, the living church is a caring church. Or we might say it is expressed by fellowship. Look again at the text, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Koinonia. This phrase, this word became the word used by the apostles to explain the fellowship of the church. And we all share in this same fellowship. This fellowship is characterized by what we share in together and what we share out together. 
What do we share in together? The grace of God. We share in the fellowship of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Truly, our fellowship is not like the world's fellowship, for our fellowship is characterized by Trinitarian fellowship. We are caught up in the love of God and the fellowship of God among Himself. We, Christians, are saved by grace and now brought into this great fellowship. Authentic fellowship is common participation in the Trinitarian fellowship. It is not what we often say fellowship is. Often our fellowship is marked by worldliness. Simply getting together, spending time, hanging out. This is not what the apostles mean by the fellowship. Rather, they mean purposeful fellowship, centered around Christ Himself and the teachings of God's Word. This is the characteristic of Christian fellowship that characterized the first church. It marked them. Koinonia is also what we share out together. We share in the grace of God, but we also share out to others. What do we share out? Well, one thing we can see in the New Testament is that Paul uses the word koinonia to describe the collection he is gathering in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's understood that this fellowship is gracious. The giving of monetary support to the church at Jerusalem by the churches of Asia Minor was described by Paul as being koinonia, being a great fellowship. Truly, if God is gracious, and He is, then His people should also be gracious and giving so we share out together not just share in the things of grace it's it's understood as we look at the passage in verse 44 this fellowship is described for us and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is a verse that we like to skip over. This is a passage which causes us great troubles. But we shouldn't skip over it and we shouldn't be in fear of it. This is not a declaration of Marxism. Christianity is not Marxism and Marxism is not Christianity. For Marxism is the imposition of giving. And Christianity is the desire from within, individually, to give and share. We are a sharing people. We are a giving people. Notice in the text that it says they had all things in common and they lived together. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What should strike our eye here and what we should understand from this text is that, notice, it is their possessions. The possessions of the first church didn't belong to the government. The possessions of the first church belonged to the Christians. You notice that? They each had their own houses. They each had their own furniture. They each had their own property. It was theirs. It was not the state's. Nor was it the church's. God had blessed each of them according to His grace. So the first thing we see is that they have private property. Secondly, we see that they gave voluntarily. Notice there's no compulsion in these verses. 
There's no outside coercion from leaders. Look what the verse says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The selling and the giving is voluntary. Now, we're see, we see later in Acts chapter 5 the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And this may be troubling to some of you. In Acts chapter 5, we're confronted with the fact that, first of all, Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, were not under any compulsion to sell their land. He says, when you owned your land, was it not your own? And then he says, after the selling of the land, when you received the proceeds from the sale, and you still had it in your hand, was it not your own? Ananias and Sapphira not being judged because they own private property, nor because they sold that and decided to give it as a gift to the church for the caring of the poor. They're being judged because they lied to the Holy Spirit. This is clearly what they're being judged for as we look. Peter says in verse 8, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. She fell dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. She fell dead because she and her husband misunderstood that giving is gracious giving. It is voluntary. And it is without compulsion. But we must not avoid the challenge of the text. You see, because it's not Marxism does not mean it is nothing. The truth is, in this text, we come face to face with the reality that we must show the love of God through sharing. Voluntary Christian sharing. That's what the text is teaching. A simple lifestyle that puts us in solidarity with the poor. God is gracious and we must also be generous and gracious in our giving. It is not a good thing that the gap is widening now between the rich and the poor. And it's not just widening in the world at large, it is widening in the church of God. No. As their brothers and sisters... We should be willing to share. Give voluntarily. Give sacrificially. Give to show that we are truly their brother, their sister. The second mark of the church is that the living church is a caring church, a fellowshipping church. Thirdly, the living church is a worshiping church. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says... And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the description of Luke, of the worship that was, was happening among the first believers. This worship, notice, is characterized by the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is not just any prayer. It is not just individual prayer, but rather it is corporate prayer that they're giving themselves to. It is a prayer that unifies the church and brings the church under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the breaking of bread is clearly a communion act. 
They were sharing in communion together. There were meals that went along with communion in their day, but the emphasis of the, of the writer here is on communion. So they took communion together and they prayed the prayers together, which brought them into unity one to another. It increased their fellowship. We might say two things about the worship of the church. Worshiping, or worship, was both formal and informal. Notice that they were in the temple. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together, they were informally, that was the formal, they were informally breaking bread in their homes. So it's both, not one or the other. And the church today needs this dynamic. We must worship together in a formal setting. And some of you younger Christians repel against this. The thought of coming together. What really is helpful about coming together? Well, there are many things. First of all, you are brought into communion with God, with the people of God. This is a great blessing which many around the world are not afforded. Secondly, you are brought not only in communion with God, but into communion with one another. Again, the basis of the fellowship of the saints is the teaching and the doctrine which was passed down by the apostles. And so to share in that together is a blessing. That is the use of formal worship. We come together to commune with God and to commune with one another. It brings a great unity and a synergistic a togetherness which cannot be gained informally. But just as much as the young people repel against formal worship, many of us in the older class of the church repel from informal worship. Old codgers like me need to meet in homes for prayer and fellowship. If we limit our fellowship to the formal experience, we will miss the intimacy of Christian fellowship. This is why we have always encouraged as your leaders the breaking of the church into groups of fellowship, home to home. It has been a great privilege and a great honor to see you embrace this and continue it through the years. I believe it has been one of the things that has kept our church together, focused on the truth and living out the truth. We need both formal and informal worship. We need worship which is both joyful and reverent. If you look at the text, the joyfulness is expressed here in verse 47. They were praising God, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were praising God. The word literally is that they were joyfully singing unto God. They were a joyful people. And it's a shame to go into a church which is stodgy and stuffy. We must be joyful saints. The Christian life, as our archbishop has said, is one long shout of joy. This is the Christian life. It is not stodgy and it is not stuffy. Christian people of all the people of the world should be joyful. Should be expressing themselves in praise to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not only joyful, but it is reverent. We notice here, 
in verse 43, and awe or fear came upon them all, every soul. This awe is reverence. This fear is a reverence for God. Many today rush in foolishly to worship in a frivolous spirit. Rather, we should approach God as the God that He is, the God of the universe. We should approach Him as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should approach Him as a Father, as a Father, and respect and reverence is due unto Him. Our joy shall not be hidden when it is expressed in reverence. The living church is a learning church a caring church, a worshiping church, and finally, the living church is an evangelizing church. The danger of textual preaching is simple. Many sermons have been preached on Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This has been said to be the description of the church. But that's the problem with textual preaching. It is often taking out of context one statement of the church. It lacks balance. It lacks precision. For the church is not only a church of learning, a church of caring, a church of worshiping, but look at verse 47, which gives us the balance. It is a church of evangelizing. Verse 47 says, They praised God and had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The balance is lost when we do not finish the paragraph. Yes, the church is learning and caring and worshiping, but if it is not evangelizing, it is not a living church. If we look at verse 42... Alone, we are unbalanced. If we look at verse 47, alone, we are unbalanced. But together, they bring balance to our understanding of salvation and the church. And I take, in verse 47, the fact that salvation is equated with church membership. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number. There is no conceptualization in this text of a Christian not in church membership. You see, one of the great errors of the modern church is the diminishing of the authority of the church. Visible. When God saved people at Pentecost, He added them to the visible church. They submitted themselves to a local fellowship. And I would encourage the same to you. They were an evangelizing church, and their salvation brought them into church membership. How were they related? Well, we see finally that the living church, if we just want to sum it up, was related to the apostles. Never run from this fact. Our foundation has been laid by the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. The founding is on the Word of God. And it is a sure foundation. The living church, then, is related to the apostles. That's why we understand it to be a learning church. The living church is related to each other. 
we see this in the fellowship of the saints. The living church is related to God. It is not only teaching. It is not only fellowshipping. It is worshiping. It is a worshiping church. The living church is related to the world outside. Or you see it as an evangelizing church. So I challenge you. Not all souls church, but Grace Fellowship. And I ask you, are we a living church? Are we characterized by these four marks? Would the world say Grace Fellowship studies, loves, worships, and reaches the lost the way the church at Jerusalem did? My answer would be yes and no. Yes, we are, we are a living church. I don't mean to uh, oversell us as a church or say that we're something we're not, but so many of you know this church loves the Word of God. Not only do we love the Word of God, but because of what we see in the Word of God, we are bound together, though we have very little in common, many of us, in our fellowship. We not only fellowship together, but we fellowship with God. We are blessed to worship here in spirit and truth. And as we grow as a church, we are beginning to see more and more evangelism. This is encouraging. This is exciting. This is a compliment to the work of the grace of God among us. But we are not a perfect church. In each of these areas, there's room for much improvement. And the way it is improved is through submission to God and care for one another. You know, at the end of his sermon in 74, he didn't include it in the others. But as we close, I want to include here a dream. You have to remember that in 1974, the world was full of dreamers and dreams. So when John Stott closed his sermon, he proposed to them a great dream which he had for the church. And when I read it several times, I saw that it's the dream that I share with many of you. I want to close by reading to you this passage called, I Have a Dream of a Living Church. I have a dream of a church which is a biblical church, who, which is loyal in every particular to the revelation of God in Scripture, whose pastors expound Scripture with integrity and relevance, and so seek to present every member mature in Christ, whose people love the Word of God and adorn it with an obedient and Christ-like life which is preserved from all unbiblical emphasis, whose whole life manifests the health and beauty of biblical balance. I have a dream of a biblical church. I have a dream of a church which is worshiping, whose people come together to meet God and worship Him, who know God is always in their midst, and who bow down before Him in great humility, 
who regularly frequent the table of the Lord Jesus to celebrate His mighty act of redemption on the cross, who enrich the worship with their musical skills, who believe in prayer and lay hold to God in prayer, whose worship is expressed not in Sunday services and prayer gatherings only, but also in their homes, their weekly, weekday work, and their common life together. I have a dream of a worshiping church. I have a dream of a church which is a caring church, whose congregation is drawn from many races, nations, ages, social backgrounds, and exhibits the unity and diversity of the family of God, whose fellowship is warm and welcoming and never marred by anger, selfishness, jealousy, or pride, whose members love one another with a pure heart, fervently forbearing one another, forgiving one another, and bearing one another's burdens, which offers friendship to the lonely, support to the weak, and acceptance to those who are despised and rejected by society, whose love spills over to the world outside, attractive, infectious, irresistible, the love of God Himself. I have a dream of a caring church. I have a dream of a serving church which has seen Christ as the servant and has heard His call to be a servant too, which is delivered from self-interest, turned inside out and giving itself selflessly to the service of others, whose members obey Christ's command to live in the world, to permeate secular society, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world whose people share the good news of Jesus simply, naturally, and enthusiastically with their friends, which diligently serves its own parish, residents, and workers, families, and single people, nationals, and immigrants, old folks, and ch little children, which is alert to the changing needs of society, sensitive and flexible enough to keep adapting its programs to serve more usefully, which has a global vision and is constantly challenging its young people to give their lives in service and constantly sending its people out to serve. I have a dream of a serving church. I have a dream of a church which is an expectant church, whose members can never settle down in material affluence or comfort because they remember that they are strangers and pilgrims on earth which is all the more faithful and active because it is waiting and looking for its Lord to return, which keeps the flame of the Christian hope burning brightly in a dark, despairing world, which on the day of Christ will not shrink from Him in shame, but rise up joyfully to greet Him. I have a dream of an expectant church. This is a great dream. There are many I have a dream speeches, but I commend this one to you as excellent above all others. May we be the church that Stott and the reformers and the apostles dreamed we would be. May we rise through the grace of God to the call that He has placed on our lives to live in learning, in caring, in worshiping, and in evangelizing.